Blog Talk Radio. author of the new book, Searching for Roy Buchanan, as well as the Brown Posey books, A Moment in the Sun and Live from the Cafe. A frank and brutally honest account of a marriage that got off on the wrong foot, but the roots of which are explored and examined through interactions as well as music. Eileen Obser is an author, editor, and educator who brings us the new Brown Posey release, Only You. Eileen, welcome to the show. Hi, Tori. Good to be here. (laughs) Well, the very beginning of your story, uh, Only You, is a jarring account, and I think the reader knows immediately this isn't going to be a fairy tale or a romance novel. Um, give us a little bit of um, sort of like a minor background into Only You, and, and without giving it all away, what the readers are going to face. Oh, well, certainly it's a, a marriage that is not doesn't work. We're both very young, uh, very naive, um, really not prepared for marriage. And the the book does go into explaining why. Um, uh, I was only 18 when we married. He was 19. And uh, his parents had died in the past couple of years before we married and I sort of fell into the role I feel and I have always felt of the of his of a replacement for his parents so mm-hmm. that I accepted as my role also in my at my generation this is we're talking the late 50s a lot of uh, the people I knew um, in from our middle class Queens New York background um, mm-hmm. th- they did get married young and it was sort of a way to get out of the house. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the happiest household. But, you know, you just have dreams of how it's going to be, how you've seen it in movies or you've read about. But this marriage did not work out that way. And that mm-hmm. is uh, at the heart of the book, really. Right. What's interesting is the cover and some of the um, photos that have gone along with um, sort of the preview that I got to see. Here's this happy young couple, you and this this young fellow, and it it, it is that that postcard sort of picture of yes, like you said, it, it looks like here's a happy young couple, you know, out to step off into the world on their own. But look at the threads that that get. Um, you untangle the threads really rather well, and you do it in a really, um, I would say, a pretty straightforward manner. Um, leading into that is a question I wanted to ask, um, because you also tell the story of your family life. You talk about growing up in Queens, New York. You talk about the late 1950s, and this was all kind of familiar to me, sort of 
secondhand because my parents got married in the 1940s. They were a little bit older when they got married, but I and I think while it was a successful marriage, I sometimes wonder about what their early years were like. Um, maybe I think our listeners would definitely identify with it. Uh, maybe you would begin. Let's talk a little bit about that upbringing that you and, and he had in, in Queens in that period of time. Well, okay. Um, I grew up, I'm the oldest of four children hmm. and grew up in a two family house owned by my grandmother, my mother's mother. Mm-hmm. So downstairs lived grandma my aunt and uncle and their five children. Upstairs lived mom, my mom, dad, myself, one younger brother, and then 10 and 12 years later, another two brothers came along from my parents. Uh-huh. So nine children eventually in the house. But at the time, they weren't really part of it, the very young ones, but still, they were. We, I had cousins. And uh, so that was our, and we were, it was a, a Queens neighborhood, as I said, middle class and lower middle class. Um, much different these days. Where it's amazing to me how things have changed, but that's everywhere, I suppose. And um, I don't uh, What can I tell you? Um, there were peaceful times and there were not peaceful times. Uh, there mm-hmm. was drinking, but I wouldn't call it alcoholism as I know it to be in later years. But it was just mm-hmm. a steady thing of beer drinking and arguments between the parents. And um, uh, but but I really uh, you know I I, I think I pr- I tried to portray it very well in my book and my brothers, well, well three of them had no complaints about it. Neither did my cousins who read it. That I didn't really trash anybody <laughs> or overdo it with complaining about my parents or my aunt uncle. You know what I mean? So uh, no, I, I don't that's hard to do did. in a memoir, no. you know, to keep it. I, I had, I didn't have to write uh, the Liars Club or the Glass Castle. I don't know if you're familiar with those memoirs. I am. Much sadder stories of growing up, but um, but I, I like that you said that you think I did capture some of it. You know, I like when people tell me that they feel it. Well, that's the thing in in terms of writing and and setting the scene. You brought us into your home and. I specifically remember the exchange between your father and mother where he's drinking and it's now there was no alcohol in my family. My neither of my parents drank. And uh but I certainly was around other kids whose parents maybe did a little bit and I never really saw a lot of what they went through. Uh certain houses probably a little more intense than others. But you brought us right in there and I wondered uh, in your growing up, did you gravitate towards your mother more than your father? What was the the dynamic for you between the two of them? How did you view them? How did they view you, do you think? Well, again, I was the uh, the oldest child, the only girl. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, that felt to me the role of being uh, eventually, you know, the babysitter uh, yeah. for my brothers. Um, my mother... She could. She was not happy, so I did mm-hmm. not. No, I was did not have a close relationship with my mother, and neither had she had one with her mother, as it turns out. So I know the whole family dynamic, but um, no. I and and my father, 
uh, he was 10 years older than my mother, and he he worked nights. So uh, during the day, this is my, the time that I'm t- speaking about in the 50s, um, we had to be quiet so Dad could sleep and go to yep. bed to, out to work again at night in the city. He was a printed pressman, um, you know, a labor that way in the labor union, printing pressman. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, I mean, he was not a, a drunk as far as he was a responsible man with his work. But on the weekends, you know, when he had time off, that's when the drinking would be taking place. And mom, saying that she didn't want him to be in the bar, she would join him, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I mean, they complained and they argued a lot. But she also, my father could be very funny. Um, he was a punster, which I have inherited from him, too. And um, she would laugh at every single thing he said, even if he, if she heard it 50 times before. So that's a very good way of keeping your marriage together, <laughs> I would think. You know, she always uh, laughed at, at his jokes, and um, so it was a good thing. So mm-hmm. I think, like with most sets of parents I hear about, they were good and bad. You know, and I'm glad that I was able to capture both without, mm-hmm. again, overdoing it. I, I have one scene where she they're both drunk, coming home at night. You might probably remember the scene. And she she goes to attack him with a knife, you know? Yeah. And I'm in the other room. How old am I? 15 years old, maybe, or 16. So I left right. my room and went out and had to intervene, you know? And they were so embarrassed and crying, you know? So and it's anyway, like, it's embarrassing for their oldest daughter not only to see that, but to have to be the one to put a stop to it. Yeah, and I'm, that must have. I mean, been, maybe I didn't have to put a stop to it, but I felt I had to. I was so tense, and I mean, I'm sorry. You would, Tori. I think anybody else would have done the same thing. Anybody yeah. with sense. So, um, yeah. well, so that's a memorable scene, too. and a couple of reviewers picked up on that. You know, that's well, very interesting too. Yeah, and my brothers lay, didn't know doing? about it. They learned about it in reading the book. They learned other things too, and there were things they did not know, and uh, but accepted them because they had their own different experiences with my parents. You know, mm-hmm. that must have been interesting. How did they react to to the things they did not know of? Well, first, my youngest brother is twelve years younger, so again, I was uh, his baby. My um, and when he first picked up the book and he started reading the first page, which is about my, I'm on my honeymoon in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and there it is, the, the night where we will have our first sexual union and it doesn't happen, he put mm-hmm. down the book. He said, I don't want to hear, I didn't want to read about your sex life. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then he picked it up and he read it in one day when he did pick it up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had right. to set the... One other brother out of the three read also, and these guys are not big readers like I happen to be. They read the, in one day, so does that that really pleases me that they stayed and with it. That tells you an awful lot. Oh yeah, that, you that so told much. me a lot, and yeah. it and um, and they did not fall to me. They had a few questions. Did that really happen? Anybody who writes a memoir gets those questions. By the way, did that really happen? Mm-hmm. Did you really say that? You know, I I, I teach memoir writing, so. Sometimes you have to, what they call, invent the truth, because you don't remember exactly what they said. 
but mm-hmm. I worked on that book. That book was a process of like 20 years before it was mm-hmm. published. So, uh, and I had, no, which I have in the preface of the book, you know, that acknowledged. I kept diaries, journals, so I had all the information. I, um, maybe not from my early childhood, but I had a lot of information um, that I was able to draw on. And Does it must have sense? been like a process. It must have been a process to go back to those old books that maybe you have not read in several years or looked at, and you crack those open and the memories come back if you couldn't remember the it off the top you of your head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it was. other things come flowing back. And, and you know, really I don't know. Years. I mean, you're a writer too, Tori. So I don't know. With the, I haven't read any of your books yet. But um, at first I wrote that book in linear fashion, starting from when I was a, a young child right through mm-hmm. the honeymoon, through the marriage, and onward after the marriage was ended. Oh, I shouldn't have said that for the readers who are possibly listening to this program. <laughs> but maybe <laughs> well, they can figure I think it, it out. <laughs> I think so. Well, this but, is the um, thing I've got to ask about that. It too, didn't is, work okay, that go, way. Had a, yeah. Yeah. It does, yeah, the oh, linear doesn't really work, and you you kicked in with well, the beginning was really the the, the thing that gets the reader anyway, and um, in terms of the thing that I want to ask about is um, when it came to your your uh, teenage years and that sort of thing, uh, you're getting out of the you're escaping the household isn't much different. Um, for many folks I know, and myself included, you know, it's like you're getting older, you need to get out there, you want to get away from looking after your siblings, and it's like you want to explore. Did you feel that because you had, were the eldest and that you had this kind of role of being the one to, to mind the younger ones, did you feel like your folks tried to keep you a child a little bit longer maybe? Well, I mean, they certainly thought I was too young to be married, Right. And uh, in retrospect, they were correct, of course. But um, I write about the te- my teenage years where I did not was not housebound. I was part of a teenage candy store crowd mm-hmm. and uh, not into drugs. There were other that was not that era yet of the big drug scene. So we were not mm-hmm. into drugs, but there was some drinking. I got drunk a few times as a teenager, but that's about it. Um, which other people did too, occasionally, very rarely. But um, no, so I was out. My my one my cousin who lived downstairs, Buddy, who to whom the book is dedicated, uh, was my best friend. He's two and a half years older than me, or two two and a quarter years older than me, and we were mm-hmm. from early childhood close friends. So I was with him. My parents trusted that because I was with my older cousin, I was safe. So yes, I was allowed to go out and about, and um, but I got criticized for that. She has my father, you know. She has to go out again. Can't she ever stay home? Which I'm mm-hmm. sure other teenagers hear to this minute, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't think, and <laughs> I'm sure it's the same thing. I just Male have to or listen female. to that awful music. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know? there you have it. It's a, that's it's the same thing with me. I'm the youngest in my family, and there's oh. about eleven or twelve years between myself and my my one of my brothers and i think it was the same kind of thing there was sort of the you know where are you off to now my mother would often ask and that would be uh-huh, yeah. that would be the <laughs> quote 
And yeah. and music, well, the music was the same thing because my dad and my mom grew up in the big band era, and and dad had played trumpet in high school, and so he oh. loved Harry James, he loved Glenn Miller, he loved that music, and uh, he loved that all, all that kind of thing, and so. My sister li- listened. She grew up in the 50s and listened to the music you did. So when I saw like the platters and, and great, great music like that, I had heard it partly through her, partly through radio and other people I was around, right? And of course, my two, my the two brothers between us listened to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and right. Bob Dylan. And um, Dad pretty much tolerated most of it, but he did admit that he just couldn't stand Dylan's voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> gosh. And then, yeah. and then, of course, the music I listened to as as a much younger child, I'm listening to everything that that you know. I'm listening to every kind of music that that none of them can can even begin to comprehend. So it's kind of like I went through it, and you know, I don't think that's one of the things that doesn't really change in the generations. I think the attitudes don't always change; they just have different. You know, it's different music, it's different movies, it's different things. Right. You know. Right. Now, Pro- I probably don't enjoy the music you do as much as you do, you know. I, I have serious radio in the car, so I can hit the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever I feel like. But uh, I'm sure you I know used to work the 70s for, I used to work a lot them. better than I do. Huh? Well, I, I used to work for them. So I, I used to work for XM Radio before the merger. Oh. And, uh I knew the people who worked on those channels, and um, I'd run into them in the building all the time. So it was really um, – it was – it was music that I, I recognized, of course, from years of listening to it from different things, and, and I even worked a radio station that had a big band type of format. So I kind of went in knowing at least some of the names and some of the singers, so I at least was prepared for that. Um, but, you know, and the music always, it doesn't matter the generation, the music always is such a moving thing, and music is a part of my writing and a lot of my stories, but... Um, you you have um, all of the, the the songs and the artists that that weave in and out of the book, and they help tell that yeah. story. I talked about the platters and others, but what were you listen you and your cousin and your friends listening to that really was like, oh, turn that up? What kind of music like that for you? Well, it's in the well, okay. So because you know, but the listeners don't know. Your listeners, right? Um, that's why I, I listed them in the back. And I had to be careful because you must know too. You know you can't use quote from the songs without getting permission. So I had yes. to usually just name them and not yep. put down uh, lines. You know from the songs. Yep. Uh, and what? So I I, I mean all the, the the hits of the day, and some of them you know like only you the title the platters that's gentle kind of music, but I, mm-hmm. I you know I was a good dancer too so rock and roll anything god uh, it's in the book you know it won mambo contests and um <laughs> lindy contest but i also mike we also uh, i grew up in a musical family also listening to big band music all the time my mm-hmm. uncles were all professional musicians who also played in the big bands Pe- peggy lee rehearsed in my grandmother's living room i was i fa- i didn't put that in the book but that's this is a true story wow. So, as, and my brother is a musician. My son is a musician. So, uh, if you're a musician, I think you just respond to all music. I've been a dancer. I've been um, taught dance many years ago. Well, but, we definitely, um, we definitely do have that because, um, yeah, because like I said, I my dad the, played trumpet. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you said that. 
My uncle played trumpet and, uh, too. But they played, weren't around um, at this period that I wrote about, you know. Yeah. Well, my brother in my brother played trumpet and then he switched to guitar and he was in bands for years. He still plays. He's in his late 60s. And yeah. uh, our other brother was a singer. He sang in the choir and I played various instruments. I mostly play guitar oh, you now, too. but uh, mm. yeah, and it's um yeah, I I think you're right about the response. One of the other things, this is the the cool thing now. I can't remember it myself because it was a time gone by, but I know that my sister probably would know, my brothers would probably know, like, the the, the hub of activity for you growing up was the candy store. Are you talking about a drugstore, or, or what exactly are you talking about? Because I wasn't quite sure. Not a drugstore, a real candy store where they, um, well, they call it the candy store, you're right. There's a counter there where you have ice cream, and, yep. um, and uh I don't remember if they served sandwiches or anything because I certainly never ate one. It was like ice cream and candy, uh, rather, and, and candy, yes, and shakes. Now, I don't think there was food. And there were some tables in the back, and we stayed outside too, and uh, which is in my book too, right next door to a funeral home. So occasionally <laughs> the the guys would have a – who were, I mean, most of the guys, they were my age and few, up to a few years older. So they would just try to annoy the uh, funeral home owner and um, make noise, you know, and and until he sometimes called the police too, you know, certainly if there was a, a wake going on inside. So, uh, yeah, we had all kinds of things going on. <laughs> Again, now, I was, uh, Glendale, where I grew up, was surrounded by cemeteries. So we had Lutheran, Jewish, Catholic cemeteries around us. I mean, they're still there. The Catholic cemetery is not. I didn't put that in the book, but that's well. They weren't. They were still alive. But people like John Gotti, of the mafia. There's a bunch of mafia mm-hmm. people buried there, along with my grandparents. But um, mm-hmm. you know, so this is this interesting place. Uh, and the Lutheran cemetery. We used to walk through that to get over to to another community. Uh, where we would catch a train to go into Brooklyn. And mm-hmm. I wrote a scene about that took place in the Jewish cemetery, uh, which you may remember, Tori, when we went over to see the stock car races. Yep. Um, yeah. So that has memories, too. And people, uh, they're still alive. The people, a few of the people who were with me at, the, at that particular time, at that event I wrote about. And... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talk about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then, I, well, can I mention that the two boyfriends I talk about, the one was a boyfriend, the other one was a crush. Augie was the crush. The <laughs> Tell me about him. <laughs> well, uh, the thing uh, with Augie, I had such a crush on him, but I didn't know how to pursue him, and he didn't pursue me, so nothing happened. And... um but when I went to write the book, I had he. I told him what I was doing. I mean, mm-hmm. he was happily married. He just died uh, about six months ago, and mm-hmm. um, but he wanted me to use his real name, and so did Tommy Murray, who's in the book, who who's my yeah. boyfriend at the age of fourteen, innocent kind of boyfriend again. Mm-hmm. So I had to get them to sign off on it. I don't know if you've had to do that with any of your books, but I do know I had to do that. So um, I just want to tell you an interesting story. I was at Augie's uh, wake 
six months ago, standing right. by his coffin, my, and with other friends from this candy store crowd standing around me, mind you, who are, who are in mm-hmm. the book, a few of them in the book. All these years yeah. later, I, I love it that this, this is happening. So I'm standing there, and then suddenly it's just I'm standing there, and Tommy Murray, the boyfriend, is standing next to me. We're both mm-hmm. looking at the coffin. Nobody else is listening. And Tommy said, oh, by the way, Augie uh, it was a Greek-American guy, you know. He said, mm-hmm. well, Eileen, do you want to jump in the coffin with your Adonis? <laughs> do you get this? <laughs> this is what he said to me. So I had to think fast, and I said, no, Tommy, I'm waiting for you, and I'm going to jump in your coffin. And guys love that. I'm sorry, you know. He laughed. He's another happily well, married guy, you know. I know his wife so well. She went to the same Catholic high school I did. But uh, I love that, you know, that it's still there. And um, yeah. I, there's one person from this old crowd of mine who informs us when somebody dies, because we're in our 70s now, so people are dying. And mm-hmm. uh, so we still have that connection. And I must tell you, uh, the ones who are uh, close to me, they're very, very pleased that I wrote the book. So that that gives me so much satisfaction, too, aside from the fact that I wanted to do it myself, you know. Right. Anyway, right. I'm talking too much. That's No, no, that is not a problem at all. <laughs> we are listening to and speaking with Eileen Obser, the author of Only You. It is a memoir that is on Brown Posey Press. And um, I want to ask now, Eileen, about the fellow who would become your first husband, he was part of your crowd. What did he represent to you, and what about him made you go forward into that relationship and eventually the marriage? Oh, well, he was a very handsome guy, um, nice-looking, but he could be very brusque. And to this day, again, um, Tommy Murray, who I'm in touch with, who uh, was in – my wedding party and Billy was his best was in his wedding party and Billy mm-hmm. was the husband. Okay. You know that. And then George, I think I changed his name, who was our best man, uh, who I see now. And then we get together. We have reunions now and then Din- mm-hmm. big dinners at the, some meet They're They're in Connecticut, New Jersey, uh, Western Long Island. I'm out in Eastern Long Island, but we meet somewhere. Usually mm-hmm. in Western, near New, near New York City, Nassau County. Right. Anyway, so, um, but they don't feel, um, I did depict, they feel I depicted Billy very well, you know, the kind of guy he was. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he was not patient. I mean, again, we were clueless. We were young. We didn't really know enough what was going on, right. and it t- terribly affected our marriage. But I think, um, I, I drew closer to him. His mother, uh, I really got to love his mother. She was such a sweet person and died very young of cancer. Okay? Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I sort of, that's, it was after that that we started being together more, eventually going steady. And then his father committed suicide. Mm. And that, after that, we got engaged. How's that, you know? And There's his such a uh, legal trauma guardians right who are in my book. Him. I was there There's for him. There's a trauma right there for that guy. Yeah, there is such a such trauma. Yeah, yeah. You know, he loses his mother and there, then suddenly his dad. But not for the right reasons, I guess. You know, I mean, it's, right. 
maybe. I thought it was. I mean, he's so young, you know. I just um, and nobody to advise us. And even going through the marriage, we didn't go for counseling. Um, hopefully, more people have the sense to do that these days. But I, I don't know. I hope so. Um, well, it's it's interesting because my own marriage. Um, I don't particularly like to talk about it because we were only married for about six years and. I think it's interesting because I was older when we got married, and yet I think both of us walked into it much the same way, and this was not that long ago. I think we were very optimistic, and I think we were very Uh, Mm over-optimistic, and it's – I don't think that that has changed that much. The one thing clearly that changed for us and for people of more recent generations – and this was something that I've read of in the past. It, the thing that strikes me is the sexual attitudes, and I talked about the mores before we went on the air. We're more open about sexuality today of different kinds. There seems to be such little examination back then. And, you know, was there any kind of I, – I don't assume there was much for sexual education for you. Did you have any inkling or understanding of, of that? What was it like back then? No, I didn't know. I I was clueless. I didn't even know when it was time for me to have a period that I would have one if it weren't for my girlfriends, Mm -hmm. whose older sisters told them rather than their their mothers. And um, you know, I just really knew nothing. And um, there are still people like that. And I'm in touch uh, because of this book with an an organization called the Women's Therapy Center. It's located on Mm -hmm. Long Island, but they treat women and men from all over the world who have these sexual difficulties. You might look mm-hmm. it up. You, I mean, just, just for your own information, they do wonderful work. And um, mm-hmm. no matter what age people get married or whatever, there are sometimes those difficulties. But uh, that was not around at my time. And even if it was, I wouldn't have known that it was okay for me to go and get help that way. I, I just mm-hmm. was clueless. Um mm-hmm. Unfortunately, yeah. And in terms of uh, when you you know you give the, the steps uh, leading up through the marriage, and you go through a great deal of detail in that. Um, when he proposed to you, and you decided, all right, we're going to do this. You also talk about the reactions of your parents and that sort of thing. And was there? Did the two of you have any kind of idea of well, we're going to do it anyway? Was I'm interested in how did you deal with the reactions of your peers, and did that unite the two of you even more? Do you think? I'm trying to get remember now. Um, well, I just uh, wouldn't have listened to my parents, and in my household. Um, my cousin Buddy was two years old, and my cousin Jimmy, who just died six months ago, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. two or three years older. So Jimmy got married in June, 1959. Buddy mm-hmm. got married in in November. Uh, what I, was what's my year again? Uh, 1959. I got married in January 1960, and my younger female cousin Joanne Maureen got married 
the following September. So four of us in a little over a year got married from the same household, okay? And mm. uh, Buddy's bride was my age. My cousin Joanne was a year younger. We all were just leaving the house and starting a new life, you know, and it just seemed mm-hmm. that's what we did. I'm sorry yeah. to say, not not great deep thought about it. And other people, our friends of ours were doing the same. Uh, I mm-hmm. must say, not all these marriages survived. <laughs> right. Of the four in the household, one, my cousin Jimmy's marriage survived 59 years. But um, wow. that was the, the others did not, did not survive. Well, that's the thing, and and without giving a lot of it away, the difficulty you faced right at the beginning. To be honest with you, that wasn't that didn't shock me one bit, because mm-hmm. we had a similar, not quite that experience, but we had something similar. And what kind of stunned me was that she told me that her father and her mother had had the exact same. Later, she told us. They had the exact same incident, almost the really? exact same period into their marriage. <laughs> and she was like, oh, my God, history's repeating itself. And that was like, okay, you know, we've, mm. we're in it now. And I, I think it, it hasn't – things like that don't change. It sometimes happens. Um, it, for you and your new husband, it's like you're, you know you're you're you also document the travel out west and going to Hawaii and and it just doesn't happen. And mm-hmm. what was did you just not feel ready? Were you afraid of him or or if I may ask, what occurred that just suddenly? Because obviously he just thought it was going to happen because you know he's the guy and it's yes. that kind of thing. <laughs> well, actually, uh, eventually I do talk about that I had to see a doctor and mm-hmm. have treatment for that because there was there was a problem, um, ah. which is not that unusual with women, where they have to have uh, – it's just not that easy. Should I go into mm-hmm. more detail than that? Um, penetration, I'll use the word, is not that easy. So, right. uh, But it, it's nice to know it if you're more – savvy and you know mature whatever to go get help mm-hmm. and what i've learned since and know to this day a lot of the women don't get help you know they 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 just feel embarrassed about it so they don't that's again i talked about the women's therapy center but um mm-hmm. that's what they work with but no um, and a lot of it yeah yeah it's like a lot sorry. of it still hasn't changed has it isn't that amazing that's right that's what you know i follow that Obviously, because I'm a reader and keep up on things, but um, Mm -hmm. that's true. And from talking to other people and, again, the people who have read my book and from the Mm -hmm. students I work with, I've written, you know, I've been teaching for 25 years, creative Mm -hmm. writing, and worked with so many memoirists. But, again, the ones who have read it, they get it. You know, they understand. So there must be a reason. They don't have to tell me their life story about that kind of experience, but the Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm and glad that the, the, it, it, it's understood, you know. Right. Well, this is the thing, too. One of the other things that I was very intrigued by, you list a number of books and articles as your reference material, and the, some of it is quite dated. I mean, obviously, yeah. it, was, it was thought to be current for the time, and I don't think I – and I was looking at some of it, and I'm like, I'm waiting for the Kinsey Report to come up here, and I see all these <laughs> others, and I'm like, Wow. Right. This is very 
it seems like information, like we were talking just a moment ago about, it, it wasn't really there, but there seemed to be a lot of odd theories, or at least I would consider yeah. them odd. <laughs> yeah, but I did actually, uh, at that time, I didn't read them after, before, you know, like while writing the memoir. I had access to those books, and right. I guess I looked for it. And again, my father was a printer, and mm-hmm. I had, um, I don't know if it's in my book, I have a first edition here of Naked in the Dead by uh, Norman Mailer mm. that he, my father printed. You know, I read it when I was twelve. I didn't understand what I was reading, but uh, <laughs> but I had access to these books. Um, now I don't remember exactly if one or two of them I might have taken out of the library mm-hmm. when I was going through it with him. Right. But those books, by the way, I still have them. I have those books. Mm-hmm on my bookshelf, yes. and I don't remember why I have them. Maybe I went out and bought them over the years, but they are. They're dated books. Um, oh. Yeah, I guess when I was going through it, you know what? I did research mm. it a bit. That's where I would have gotten the books. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Good question, right. though. I really appreciate your uh, reminding me. I'll, I'll actually think about that and remember exactly where I got those books. Right. But I had now, uh, references yeah, to them go ahead. that are dated mm-hmm. for those that period. Yeah, and it's now again. How long were you married to to Billy? How long were you married to this guy? Uh, less than two years. Mm-hmm. But you know, and, uh, are, are we allowed to say all this for all the readers who are going to run out and buy my book? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, if I think a lot listening. of folks. I think a lot of readers. <laughs> are going to identify with us. They're going to identify with some of the issues. They're going to identify with some of the difficulties yeah. that were faced. Yeah. And um, getting him, you know, in that short period, um, also the question of divorce, the big D. I mean, was divorce more accepted in that period of time, the early 1960s? Today, well, it's not... It, it's so common now, but was it then? Was it talked about, or was it one of those things that families just did behind closed doors and talked? The thing we didn't even have to think about divorce. Our our right. our choice. We were ready for annulment, which happened with the state and with the church. So mm-hmm. I didn't have to concern myself with that. Um, so I can't answer that question. That wasn't mm-hmm. even an option, and. Um, Again, I've I've detailed that in the book too. You know, meeting with the uh, with the judge, you know, and it was mm-hmm. uh, it was much too easy. And the church was a much deeper process. And I do go through that. Um, what's yes, involved. And um, but I know other stories. I have a cousin whose husband decided he wanted an annulment so he could marry somebody else. But they had three children together, so they didn't have the same reason for getting an annulment. I don't know why he got an annulment or how. Well, it paid. I, I'm sorry to say I think he paid a lot of money for it. But um, mm-hmm. because of that, she was able to marry the next husband in mm-hmm. a Catholic church. <laughs> so I, I don't <laughs> know why. But I hear these stories occasionally of people get annulments and they have children walking around, so they must have had a sex life. It used to be that was the reason, you know. <laughs> Gosh, right. crazy. Now yeah. that's interesting too, is because it leads into the man who became your second husband, Fred, or first yes. official, however you like. What made that relationship, and what made that man stand apart from from the other one? 
Do I have that in the book? I do go through that. You talk this a little bit about this... him. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what I wrote about him, so I have to repeat anything. But the... no, he was part of the candy store crowd too. Oh. And I reached out to him after I was separated because could... my girlfriends thought I was being silly that I had to go out and immediately find another man. And um, so, I don't know, we wound up together uh, mm. eventually. And, um, you know, I don't even remember how much of that I put into the book. Mm. But it's, just, it's, it's, it's interesting that uh, there was a stand, there was some, it was like you, you were like a little older and a little more wise perhaps to, to it. But I don't think I, did I really have much about him in there? Because there was... This book was much longer. It went into my the next part of my life after that marriage. Um, but I was advised to cut it, that it was too, mu- too much. You know, it was like two stories in one. Oh, okay. Uh, so I did. So that's the sequel, which I don't know if I'll ever finish it. Um, <laughs> I had a very interesting time working at the New York Times mm-hmm. uh, Information Bureau. After that marriage broke up, and then um, and I worked there until um, pregnant. You know, I was I eventually was pregnant. Friday and I mm. married, and and um, so it was a different life. You know, whole different story. Well, one thing I must now ask: um, you had alluded to reading Norman Mailer's uh, book when you were just twelve. Um, your father must have had access to some other things. Did that influence your your reading as a young as a girl and as a young woman? Yeah. I'm I'm, inter- I'm always interested in knowing what people read and maybe what their parents read as they grew up. Yeah, that's interesting. I wrote a, an essay and it's published. It's not on my website though, and it was published in um, literary ma- the college literary magazine because. Uh, the editor, who was happened to be one of my professors, uh, by the way, in my 60s, I went back to school to get an MFA, and um, I did not bring this manuscript in at all. This book, uh, I wanted mm-hmm. to write other things, and it was only I use it as the thesis. Mm-hmm. So that's where I had help from a couple of the professors who said, you know, this book is, you want to cut this part off, and anyway, it got they really received it very well. But anyway, what was the question? <laughs> Um, basically, what were you, what oh, were the, you reading? Yeah. So I wrote a, an essay called Words. And I grew okay. my father went through the first year of high school. That's it. My mother went through eighth grade. So neither of them were educated. But they both read everything. They were voracious readers. But what did they read? My father, the Daily News. You know, mm-hmm. not the New York Times. You know, I didn't grow up on that. The, the Daily News, the Post at that time. Um, yep. and uh, books too which he's always bringing books home and my mother was one for not so much books as all the women's magazines whatever mm-hmm. was around the house I read you know okay. my father was a crossword puzzle person so I was very young and I was already able to complete crossword puzzles in the daily news and wow. eventually as I got older in the New York Times when I was with other people who we were able to finish them before it even was print- came out on Sunday. But um, mm-hmm. I just developed it. I was always a reader. I was, from the I don't know if that's in the book. I think it is. 
the library. I joined it when I was, what, five or six years old. So I was always at the library. My parents didn't tell me what to do or not to do about reading, so I read everything. You know, I I really read everything. The popular books, and if I liked one author, I read all the all the books by that author. Um, Anyone just in particular? Always. I still am like that. Maybe you're a reader, too, if you're a writer, you know. I think all writers well, you, should read, by the way. I preach that. <laughs> well, that's something I definitely want to ask about. Um, what was? Where did you really get your first creative urge to to write? And I mean, obviously, you've got, oh. um, you have the, uh, you have freelance articles, you have all kinds of essays, and you you've landed in some good places like the Village Voice and uh, New York Magazine and all. And that must be. But where did it begin for you there? Oh my God! As a very young child, you know, second grade. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wrote, um, and I have that in the book too, a scene where I wrote a love poem. There I am, second grade, having a crush. (laughs) All these guys I had crushes on. Thank God I didn't marry them all, right? You know, but, uh, so I wrote this love poem and I brought it home and my mother said, what's that hanging out of your pocket or something? And she saw it and she said, oh, what is this? And she threw it in the garbage. So Mm. because of that, I never showed her anything I wrote after that. But I didn't stop mm-hmm. writing, you know. And right. um, you know, now and then, I, I, I again, I wrote a. It's, it's that's in the book too. I wrote a, um, a horror story, set in a cemetery, which of course I was surrounded with them because every Saturday we were, there was a period of time, over a couple of years, I guess we had to go to the movies. That was it. You went to the Saturday matinee, mm-hmm. and what did they show? But double features and. Scary movies, which to this day I don't <laughs> like. And um, so that inspired what I thought was a novel. It was 15 pages long. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Well, but, at the uh, beginning, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of my favorite books now on writing is On Writing by Stephen King. Stephen King. And I, 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 always, I have a copy of it, and I always tell other writers, it's like you want to start somewhere. This it's a, it's this one of the best. Something. Yeah, it is. Because the first half of it is a memoir, the second half is yep. on writing, and um, and that and that and what first he, half he's tells right you on, so he, much. He's right on target. Yeah, you know? he is. And I wouldn't like read when you hear those stories about what happened to him when he was little. It's like, uh, now yeah. I see where he gets these ideas. <laughs> right. Yeah. And how he was once it. Once he was writing that book, how he finished it, even though he was hit by a car, you mm-hmm. know, and it was a miracle he survived. I don't, but I, I, I mentioned him because I don't like, I don't read any of his books. I don't like horror stories. Um, they scare me. Well, well, I had to read <laughs> The Shining when I was in high school, and oh, I yeah. actually liked it. I generally I don't read horror, but I did. I thought, well, let's just say the book's way better than the movie. Oh, yeah. With Jack Nicholson, it, yeah. It usually, usually the book is better. It, I think, it, it, in a lot of Stephen's books seem to be much more detailed, and they get kind of stripped away for the film. And I kind of get that, but I kind of sort of don't. <laughs> but um, no, it's yeah. interesting too that um, you know one of the things I tell people about my broadcasting career and my other things was I had very good teachers. Uh, did you have anyone that set examples oh. for you in school or around you? That's a good question too. Out of I had nuns teaching me, and sometimes we oh. were sixty 
children to a class through through eighth grade, boys and girls oh. in the classroom. And um, out of all of them, one was inspirational. That's enough sometimes just to have one. And that was about seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, the others know. Then in high school, I went to an all-girls Catholic high school, um, which is now closed, which I'm sorry. I noticed so many Catholic schools are closing around the country. But um, mm-hmm. uh, maybe one, yeah, one teacher there, too, was helpful as far as encouraging. I always mm-hmm. had high grades, especially in English um, and history of geography. I'm, I was interested in those things, but um, right. not in math at all. So that's why I'm not a mathematician. <laughs> I'm a writer. But um, so just one, I'd say. So, no, I didn't get the inspiration from the teachers. I got them on my own or from other, you know, just people. Uh, there's a, the, the woman who became Billy, my first husband's legal guardian, because his parents died before he was of age, Norma. Mm-hmm. I also have written yeah. about Norma. She's in my book, but I've written separately about her. I have a beautiful essay that gives, you know, homage to her, and she was so inspirational to me. She was like my mentor for some years, during and after that marriage to Billy. You know, so I'm I'm very pleased. That was so helpful to me in making me, you know, write and read and just, it just was so great. Everybody Mm -hmm. should have that, but... I don't know. Yeah. Did you have a mentor? <laughs> I had people who, well, my mom was, was very encouraging of my writing, and uh, I was very fortunate to have that. I was very fortunate to have, um, it was kind of the same thing. I think in high school I had like one teacher who was sort of obliquely interested, and mm-hmm. it's probably the only reason I got out of, I passed my freshman English course was that I submitted a horrible short novel that was just poorly written. But he apparently was very intrigued by it, and I think that's why I didn't get an F. <laughs> so, okay. um, and in in college, I was very fortunate to be taught by a published author who ran, who led the English department at my school, and who has been. I'm surprised he remembered me, but uh, he became very helpful to in in my books and very supportive. So, I've I've always been I've always looked to them those three folks as the people who really were very helpful and I was always inspired by other writers uh, that just did good stories and eventually you just get to a point where you're like I really want I know I've got something in my head so I've got to do this thing um, right the one question I have for you is now you also teach and um, when did you know teaching? What is how is the challenge teaching writing to young folks today? And uh, oh, I don't teach young folks. I teach older folks. Okay, by choice. Um, when I taught at <laughs> two of the colleges, I, I especially I, I didn't want to teach. Um, I wanted to teach older people who had 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 some background history, not just memoir writing, but whatever they were writing. And it just worked out mm-hmm. like that. So I never taught uh, as a regular professor by choice. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like reading all the um, the work that you have to. It, I, you know, I just think we read in the classes, and it's worked out for me that way. I haven't, uh, you know, taught full semesters. Does that make sense to you? But, yes, um, it does. It does. Yeah. So right now I, I, I reduced myself from 
three that I was teaching at one time down to one six weeks series four times a year at a local library and it's very popular and I'm in a very artsy area so I get uh, some unusual uh, sometimes prominent people who sign up for my classes you know and because nice. uh, they want to be writing memoir they want, in this case now you know I've been doing memoir at this place for 11 years so they want to write about their lives that's fine mm-hmm. I mean I write fiction too by the way you know I have a novel almost done uh, and about being a, I used to rent rooms in my house for I don't know how much time we have uh, for many years run his bed and breakfast and rent so it's right. it's about being a landlady out here in the Hamptons and believe me oh wow some of them are, you might want to call them horror stories because of the people <laughs> but um, I'm having fun with it it's it's really just ready I even talked to Lawrence about it but I don't know. If, if well, that's, uh, that's what suitable. I was going to ask was what is coming next, and this sounds like a that sounds like yeah. it would be very entertaining. <laughs> oh yes, out here especially, you know. I mean, if it's set out here, there's all these people want to buy this book. I know that. And then I have another memoir set starting from the mid '70s, which is when my next marriage ended, and I was living. I moved out here to the East End of mm-hmm. Long Island. And uh, I, I can't even have time to tell you everything that happened in those next few years. But uh, okay, well let's uh, let us wrap it up with one final question. I usually ask this when Eileen. Um, for those who wish to write or are seeking advice, is there any piece of advice that you generally give to people about if you want to write, how to go about it? Yeah, I'm going to read from. Uh, where is he? William Zinza, are you familiar with him on writing well? A little bit, yes. Yeah, that's a book I always recommend too. And okay, hold on. I have this ready for you with your name in the corner here. But just, uh, I mean, obviously, if you're going, you just have to write. Oh, here it is. No, it doesn't. Yeah, you don't need permit. You just have the main thing is just to do it, just not to. Uh, you have to write. You have to sit down and write. There's also the option to, uh, in some all around the country, they're probably offering writing workshops in libraries. It's good to group, you know, join a group of people. But uh, not to not to just keep it to yourself. Write write it down. You know, just get down your thoughts, even if it's a journal, diaries. It doesn't have to be, and you don't have to think of writing a book. It could just be a short piece that, mm-hmm. about your family, about yourself, whatever. I'm, I now I have a list here. I wrote it. Um, and you're a supportive group of people, by the way. There are such things mm-hmm. as not good workshops where they bash each other, which I know about. And mm-hmm. um, and read. My God, read everything. <laughs> you know, I, I think you must know that too. It's just so important to keep reading. That's very true. You still, well, listen, yeah. Eileen. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this, and uh, you know you've offered a lot of insights, and I think uh, I think this is definitely going to get people to pick up only you. Well, I'm just glad to talk with you, Tori, and you know it's always good to talk about writing with another, and especially with another writer. So thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you. And that wraps it up for this edition of the Brown Posey Press Show. I'm Tori Gates, author of the new book, Searching for Roy Buchanan. Until next time, thank you for listening, and be sure to check out past episodes right here. This is the Book Speak Network. 